Please do sit down and uh, be taking up your Bibles and uh, turn to page 1058, 1058, to Luke chapter 22 and verse 47. Luke 22, verse 47. If you are someone who was uh, into quick glances and trying to make your assessment quickly, you might have looked at the events of our passage tonight and you might have concluded that it's all over, that the uh, three goals have already gone in and the fourth has just happened. Yes, some of you remember the 1966 World Cup. You might conclude it's all over for Jesus and for his band of followers. You see, it begins with one of his closest followers, Judas, betraying him. Jesus is arrested by the Jewish establishment. And when his right-hand man, Peter, draws his sword and tries to defend Jesus, Jesus stops him. And then after a few uh, final words of defiance to his captors, Jesus is led away. This is the world's darkest hour. And it looks very bad on the surface. Seemingly, this is the beginning of the end. The beginning that would culminate within 24 hours as Jesus was crucified upon a cross. As darkness covered the land for three hours. As he bore the sin of the world like a common criminal. However, as we uh, look at these uh, words tonight, uh, we can see that first glances can be very deceptive. And we'll find tonight for Christians that there is great encouragement for those who have received the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Saviour to go on believing in him, to go on living for him and telling others about him. And of course these are words that are very much in season as we approach a passion for life and Easter. There are many, many opportunities for us to reach out and to tell others about Jesus, even, even if they may reject us for doing that. And alongside that, that encouragement to Christians, there lies a great warning to those who are not yet believers in Jesus, to those who continue to reject him rather than receive him. A warning to see that what they are doing by behaving this way is is so short-sighted that their rejection, well, their rejection does more harm to them than to Jesus. My headings this evening are three. Firstly, the many ways to reject Jesus. Secondly, the wrong way to defend Jesus. And thirdly, the short-sightedness of rejecting Jesus. So to the first, the many ways of rejecting Jesus. As Jesus ends praying with his, uh, well, ends praying on his own, and as we see the prayerlessness of his disciples is being chastised by Jesus. Suddenly, verse 47, as he speaks to them, a crowd comes up, and a man who was called Judas, just simply called a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He was once one of the inner circle. And as we see uh, who lies among this crowd, well, we see uh, a number of people down in verse 52 who are with him. And of course, straight up, we can see the first person who's rejecting Jesus. It's obvious, isn't it? It's Judas himself. Once one of the so-called, in inverted commas, you might call them the top 12. 
He'd had almost unhindered access to Jesus during his ministry. He'd seen him doing amazing miracles, healing people with just a word. Miracles as he calmed the storm with a word, fed thousands just from a packed lunch. Miracles of life and death as he raised people to new life who had died. Miracles, too, of casting out demons and forgiving sin. And, of course, there was all Jesus' teaching that he'd seen time and time again and heard. People had hung on his every word and and all his words seemed to fit together. There were no inconsistencies. Judas had experienced all this. And so, verse 47, he goes up to greet Jesus and he approaches him with the most excessive of greetings out, a kiss. Uh, We don't see men kissing uh, too much in this country unless you're watching Premiership football. But in those days, even uh, in uh, the Middle East, uh, a kiss would have been uh, perhaps a regular way, but this was an excessive kiss. But Jesus is no fool. He knows full well what is going on here. And he replies, just look, verse 48. Jesus approaches to kisses him, but Jesus asked him. Jesus sees right through him. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You see, here is the veneer of friendship and devotion. But it's all a pretense, isn't it? And Jesus is not fooled a jot. So we find here, don't we, a big warning that it can be easy to appear an insider, to appear to be a friend of Jesus when we're not. We're an outsider. Maybe you're someone who's been coming to Christ Church for many, many years. You've been a regular on Sundays. You've even come along to the odd midweek meeting. You have that veneer of friendship and devotion. But in reality, underneath, there's nothing You don't believe in Jesus, really. It's just something that you do occasionally. You certainly don't live it out. Perhaps you're someone who's grown up in a Christian family. Perhaps you're someone who's been part of the children and youth work for many years here. Perhaps you're a student who's come along regularly to uh, student meetings on Sundays and then here in the evenings even over many years. You're someone who, like Judas has lived in Jesus' shadow, but you've never pledged true allegiance to Jesus. If that's you, be under no illusions. Jesus knows your heart. He knows whether you really are truly walking with him. He can't be fooled. We may try to kid ourselves, but we cannot fool him. We cannot pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. So first there's Judas... And then there's the religious authorities. We see who they are, verse 52. Uh, Just listen to who's uh, among uh, the pack that come with Judas. Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who'd come for him. Chief priests were the prominent leaders and the teachers of the people. The officers of the temple guard, fairly, well, that doesn't take much explaining, does it? Those for keeping law and order in the temple. And then there are the elders, those uh, ruling members of the Sanhedrin, uh, the ruling council. Each of these people show their true colours, don't they, as they come to arrest Jesus. They too have heard much of what Jesus has taught. They've seen much of what he did. He'd done it before their very eyes on the streets and even in the temple. 
But now they come together to reject Jesus and to arrest him. Their rejection has gone on for a long time. It just shows, as we see how their rejection has grown, that hard-heartedness begins somewhere. And it goes on and on and on. And soon it's not just hard-heartedness. It's an unwillingness to believe, regardless of the evidence before you. Back in uh, chapter 11, there's no need to turn to it now. You may want to just note it down. Chapter 11, verse uh, 53 and 54, Luke tells us that... uh, those people began to oppose Jesus fiercely. They tried to catch him out. Another example, uh, chapter 19 and verse 47 and 48. Let me just read those uh, verses to you. Every day when Jesus was teaching at the temple, so they were there, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Again, chapter 20, verse 19, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. And then chapter 20, verse 26, they set a trap. They tried to trap Jesus with all sorts of questions. They pretend, verse 20, to be honest so that they can uh, catch him out and hand him over to the authority of the governor. But verse 26, they were unable to do so. They were astonished by his answers and they became silent. It's a picture of people who have heard so much, heard so much about who Jesus is and about what he's come to proclaim. But they refuse to believe that he is indeed the Son of God. And they refuse to believe the message of salvation that he's bringing for them. I think it's a salutary reminder to Christians, isn't it, that people will hear more than enough to convince them, more than enough evidence to convince them of who Jesus is, but they'll just go on rejecting him anyway. Maybe you've got friends like that. The signs are obvious. They're far more, readily, uh, they're far more ready to laugh at you than to listen to you when you speak about Jesus. They marginalise people like that. They marginalise Christians rather than listen to the message about Jesus and mull it over. Maybe uh, a number of people like that here tonight. You know who you are. A number of people who have mocked Christians or marginalised them, even persecuted them. Maybe some of us here tonight who have been on the opposite end, who have been mocked and marginalised and persecuted. Perhaps you've been out uh, knocking on doors in the parish. Perhaps it came from an unbelieving member of your family. Might have been for some of you at school when you started to tell somebody about Jesus. Or for you guys at uni when you talked to some of your uh, fellow students. Might have been for others of us at work. It's not pleasant when that happens. But you know, we we shouldn't be surprised. People choose many ways to reject Jesus and to reject the truth that we speak about him. And because that's so, uh, we as Christians, I think, need to make very sure that when we speak about Jesus, when we tell people about Jesus, we tell them the truth. So that when they reject Jesus, they end up rejecting the true Jesus rather than somebody who is a myth. That they don't reject Jesus for the wrong reasons. So first up here, 
tonight, these verses give us a salutary reminder for Christians that many will reject Jesus, many will reject us as we speak about him. But these verses also contain a word of warning, a word of warning for those tonight who are rejecting Jesus. Let me just say that uh, those who reject Jesus aren't just those who embrace other religions. It's those who actually won't embrace the truth about him. You won't listen to what your friends say about Jesus. You don't want to believe that he is indeed the Lord and Saviour of the whole world. And that includes people who sit on the fence. You pretend that by sitting on the fence, you don't need to make up your mind. You've got a foot in both camps. No, all those kind of people are, are rejecting Jesus. And if you're that kind of person, have a look at what Jesus says to Judas as Judas betrays him. Listen again to verse 48. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Do you see who, Judas, uh, who Jesus says he is? He calls himself the Son of Man. It's a title he's used many times. You'll see it if you look throughout Luke. He's used it lots of times. And it's, it's a title that has great pregnant meaning from the Old Testament. You can find it back in Daniel chapter 7. When God promises to send one who would be the judge and ruler of everyone. Someone who is none other than his son, Jesus. That's what's promised way back in the Old Testament you may want to have a look sometime at uh, Luke chapter 17. We'll look a bit later on at part of it. But Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. And read those verses to see what Jesus says about the ministry of the Son of Man. And you know what? By, by using that title to Judas and before those religious people with him, Jesus is showing the reality and the irony of what is happening as they are rejecting him as they are judging Jesus and act, acting as jury and those who condemn him. To Judas and to others like him, he says, you may have made your judgment, Judas, about me, but you may have decided to reject me and now you come to betray me. He says to the others with Judas, you've made your judgment about me, you've decided to reject me and now you've come to arrest me. And have me killed. But I am the son of man. I am the son of man. And I am the true king. I am the true judge. Who will judge you all. He says the same thing to anyone. Else who makes the same choice. Remember I am the ultimate judge. The son of man. And as he says that. He says that. There's an unasked question to us. Do you want to reconsider? Do you want to reconsider your own rejection of me? Do you want to turn away from rejecting me and turn back to me? Well, if you're someone in that camp tonight, please, please look at who Jesus really is. Look at what he says about himself, about who he is, about why he came and about how he calls us to respond to him. Why not come along to uh, the final night of Christianity Explored this week? It's the wrap-up evening for the course, but it also gives a taster for those who want to come and find out more, who are thinking about coming to the next course. Please, please, if you're rejecting Jesus, come and find out about who you're rejecting 
before you make that final choice. For he is the Son of Man, the true King, and the judge of us all. And you know, it's because Christians know that, because we know that truth and the consequences of rejecting Jesus, that we want to defend Jesus before those who want to reject him. Do you find yourself wanting to do that as a Christian? People reject Jesus and so you want to defend him. You want to say, no, you've got it wrong. Listen to the truth about him. And of course, that's exactly what we see Peter doing here on the Mount of Olives. It's the right thing for his followers to do. But as we'll see, Peter's response to those who reject Jesus is totally wrong. So let's note, secondly, the wrong way to defend Jesus. As Jesus' disciples realise what's going on, that Jesus is about to be arrested, uh, they begin to ask him, verse 49, Lord, what should we do? Should we strike with our swords? It seems a kind of understandable response, doesn't it? You're there with Jesus in the, on the Mount of Olives, and uh, this posse arrives armed with clubs and swords. And so they immediately think, yes, we need to defend him. We need to defend him. Hadn't Jesus just told them back in the upper room, verse 36, if you haven't got a sword, sell your cloak to buy one? Surely, surely Peter's doing the right thing, isn't he? Meeting violence with violence seems the right way to go. And so, uh, without waiting for Jesus to answer, one of them, and if you look at John 18, verse 10, you'll see that the one is Peter, good old impetuous Peter, who always acts before he waits for an answer. Immediately, he strikes the servant of the high priest, verse 50, cutting off his right ear. On the surface, what Peter does seems loyal and courageous. But he wasn't. Just look at what uh, Luke records next and the words that Luke records. He says, on the one hand, he strikes and cuts off the right ear, but Jesus answered. He's got it wrong. And Jesus says, no more of this. And he touches the man's ear and he heals him. Two reasons uh, from these uh, verses why Peter's actions are wrong. The first is uh, fairly easy to see because it denies God's plan of salvation. Peter had been with Jesus since the very beginning. He'd heard Jesus talk time and time again about what he was going to do. Uh, you may want to note down some of these verses. Uh, Luke 9 verse 44, Jesus says these words. He says, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. What was happening on the Mount of Olives? Judas comes out to betray him. Chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says the Son of Man would suffer and be rejected before again he would come again in all his power and his glory to judge and to rule. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan of salvation. And then again in, verse, in chapter 18 and verses 31 to 33. Page 1053, chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, that's where they went now, and everything that is written about by the prophets, about the Son of Man, 
will be fulfilled. What are, what are those things? Verse 32, he'll be turned over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. But wait for it. On the third day, he will rise again. You see, Jesus' betrayal, his arrest and indeed his death, they were all part of God's plan of salvation, which would end with Jesus being resurrected and would then conclude as Jesus returns as judge and ruler. That's the first reason why Peter is wrong, because it denies God's plan of salvation. It's all there in the script. And the second reason it's wrong is because it makes Jesus' kingdom a worldly kingdom. Jesus reveals this in verse 52. He says to the people who have come to arrest him, he says, am I leading a rebellion? that you come against me with swords and clubs? There's no need for an armed posse to uh, arrest me. I'm not leading uh, an insurrection, a rebellion. Uh, mine is a spiritual kingdom. And then Jesus uh, comments on this again as he is interrogated by Pilate. In John chapter 18, verse 36. Don't, don't bother turning to it now, I'll just read the verse to you. Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You see, Jesus would have had his servants fight against his arrest if his kingdom was a worldly kingdom, but it's not. Jesus says his kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual kingdom. And therefore it's not to be advanced by force and it's not to be resisted by force either. Force is futile. Matthew records when Jesus is arrested that Jesus says to the people, couldn't I have called down legions of angels? Jesus could have had an angelic army come and defend him against this small posse of people. You see what Jesus is saying? His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And so fighting in a worldly fashion, either resisting his kingdom or defending his kingdom is totally wrong. And yet, as we see and hear of Christians being persecuted, killed in attempts to wipe out Christianity, we have second thoughts. Only last weekend, you may have heard in the press, people, Christians in Nigeria, in several villages, were wiped out, probably by Muslims. And Archbishop Ben Kwashi, a number of us know him, he's a friend of Christ Church Forward, uh, he describes the aftermath in an open letter that he's written. Let me just read to you some of the words about what happened. News then broke on Sunday the 7th of March, last weekend, that two other villages, plus another, had been attacked by Muslim at Fuyani at, from about 3 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock. Some of these communities may never again be recognised in history because generations have been wiped out. Hundreds of corpses of men, women, children and grandchildren littered the burnt houses, roads, bush paths, farm areas and hiding places. Tears and endless wailing. Until they couldn't wail anymore, voices croaked and words were no more. 
And then he says later on, he says, I urge believers to clean and clear their minds from any form of bitterness, resentment, or even any thought of vengeance against one another. And then, he says, we can see clearly how to respond in times of difficulty, such as this one. He doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say go on for vengeance. Do you see the difference between Peter's approach of hastiness and impetuousness? It looks loyal, it looks courageous, but actually it's disloyal and cowardly. It refuses to accept the way of suffering, the way that marks the way of the cross, the way of the kingdom of God. So how should Christians defend Jesus and advance the gospel? The key truth is this, that advancing the gospel is never achieved by force. There are many woeful examples of how that's been tried in the past, how force has been used to advance, in inverted commas, Christianity throughout the world. The Crusades, the wars of religion in the 17th century, and of course the modern examples in Uganda and in the Congo. And, of course, in Nigeria. Believe it or not, a general in the Lord's Resistance Army in the Congo wore a badge on his shoulder saying he was a rebel for Christ. But they aren't Christ's army, are they? Christ's army doesn't fight that way. Jesus says, no more of this. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And a spiritual kingdom. And people in that kingdom fight with spiritual weapons. We heard those weapons, didn't we, in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. You may want to just turn to them, page 1177. It's worth it reminding ourselves of them because we're going to be needing to use them when we go home tonight and when we go out to work or to school or to our universities tomorrow. This is the way to be strong in the Lord Ephesians 6, verse 10, page 1177. How are we strong in the Lord? Well, we put on the full armour of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand stand. And then he goes through what that armour looks like. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Keeping on being ready to take that gospel out. Take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And note it's all done in the context of prayer upon prayer upon prayer. And Paul says this, verse 19, within the context that he himself may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which, tellingly, verse 20, he is an ambassador in chains. He was arrested, put in chains for the gospel. This is how you and I should defend Jesus and the gospel, how we are to advance the gospel in the face of those who reject Jesus. The battle, yours and my battle, is fought with the spiritual weapons because it's a spiritual battle. 
You know what? That's exactly how Jesus fought on the Mount of Olives. He doesn't draw a sword, but he prays. That's how that battle was won. As he knelt and prayed first, and then he went to fight the battle. It's often said that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. Well, the spiritual battleground is won with the spiritual weapons and on the prayer mat of every Christian. That's mighty encouraging, isn't it, as a Christian here tonight? If you're feeling hard-pressed, if you're worried about striking out for Jesus and speaking the gospel, if you're feeling that the battle is hard at home, because you live with someone who's not a Christian or you work with someone who's not a Christian take heart, this is how to fight and to win if you fight any other way you will be disheartened you will not win you will lose so first off, the many ways to reject Jesus second, the wrong way to defend Jesus and advance the gospel and then very briefly as I end the short-sightedness of rejecting Jesus Verses 52 and 53 here are Jesus' final words to that crowd as they rejected him and arrested him. And his words just highlight how short-sighted they are and anyone else who rejects Jesus. Verse 52, Jesus says, well, he tells them they can't really see who he is properly. Otherwise, they would not come against him as if he was leading a rebellion. They don't see who he is And of course, we've seen this already, haven't we? They've seen him, but they haven't seen him. And they've rejected him. But next up, verse 53, Jesus goes on and he tells them the reality that lies behind their perceived victory as they arrest him. No doubt, as they went out to arrest him and saw this small posse of of, uh, disciples, a posse who start out to defend Jesus, and Jesus says, no, don't do that. One of them has wounded one of the people who come to arrest Jesus and Jesus heals him. Victory is ours. This is our greatest day, that arresting party must have thought. But actually what Jesus says in verse 53 is that their power is very limited. Their power is limited. And it's limited for two reasons. Firstly, it's limited because they only have the power that they have because God's given it to them. Look at verse 53. Jesus says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour. You see, up to then, they couldn't do a thing, even though Jesus was on their territory. But now it is their hour. It wasn't, but now it is. Now is the time when they can act as if they're in control when they and everyone else who is opposed to Jesus, and that includes Satan, when everyone else, well, they're in control for the moment. That's why it's called the darkest hour, the hour when darkness reigns, because that is who is in control. But it tells us that before that, before that they had no power at all. Now is the time. So firstly, it's limited because God's given it to them. But secondly, God's only given it to them for a limited period of time. Do you see that? But this is your hour. Your hour. 
Rejection against Jesus, the power of the world, of Satan, it's limited for only a short space of time. The hour is given by God and soon it will be over. And so as those who reject Jesus lead him to Calvary, they nail him to a cross. They thought that was their true time of victory. It was the hour when darkness reigned. But very soon, within three days, Jesus rose victorious. And it was not just his hour, it was his eternity. Now you and I live between when Jesus rose and ascended to heaven to reign. Between that time and the time when he is going to return to reign and to judge for all time. And these verses, therefore, give us firstly a warning to those of us who would continue to reject Jesus. One day you will face Jesus face to face and you will have to face the consequences of your rejection. So you see, it's very short-sighted, isn't it? It's sheer folly just to keep on living in this world as if you're in control because you're not. The hour that God has given you Well, that's just a small blink of an eye in in the perspective of eternity, isn't it? And the stopwatch is ticking. Time is going by. Your reign will soon be over. I have to ask you, is it really worth holding out, is it? Because, you know, uh, without Jesus, without Jesus, it can never be your finest hour, only your darkest. Indeed, the finest hour is to turn to Jesus. If Jesus was gracious enough to heal, to heal the ear of one who came to arrest him and send him to his death, how much more so will he be gracious to one who turns from rejection and turns to love him and receive him as Lord and Saviour? If that's you tonight, heed this warning and come, come to him. And then finally, as I close, some words of comfort to the Christian. Comfort to cry out to your Father in heaven. To cry out in prayer and to put on the armour. You may be going through an hour of trial now. And it may be a long one. A long one. A long one in which we face the enemies of Jesus. Those who reject him and reject us. You may be mocked, marginalised, persecuted. But you know what? One day that hour will be over. Be over. That may be tomorrow. It may be days, weeks, even years ahead. But you know, just as surely as winter is followed by spring, even this year, even this year, spring will come. It is coming. So the hour of trial will end. And Jesus' enemies will not be victorious. He is victorious. So you see, as as Jesus is, is arrested, as it looks as if the world is in control, as it looks as if the world is victorious, it is in fact the world's darkest hour. It may look as though it's the beginning of the end, but it isn't because God is very much in control. Even if he allows others to reign for a short while. So these verses show us the many ways that people reject Jesus. Is that you? Are you one of those who reject him? It shows us that actually we should defend Jesus, but how to defend him in the right way if we are Christians. 
And it shows us too the short-sightedness of rejecting Jesus because he's the true and reigning king and he is the one who will return as judge. These are challenging words. Challenging words whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian because they take us beyond our comfort zone. They demand a response from each of us tonight whether it's as a non-Christian to end our rejection of Jesus to turn in repentance and faith to him. Or as the Christian, to be ready and willing as we step outside here tonight to contend for Jesus, to put on that armour and to trust him to protect us and to enable us to use the weapons that he has given us to fight his way and trust his sovereignty. Are you ready and willing to do that? Well, let's turn a moment now and let's take a moment of quiet as we consider how we're going to respond to Jesus. Some of us to end our rejection. Others of us to start contending for Jesus.